I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. Screw it. I'm done with software. I'm going to go into physical goods. I'm, I'm, you know, this, this ephemeral thing that lives in the cloud that is hard to put a valuation against. I'd rather have a million units in a warehouse. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, co-founder and CEO of Art of Sport, Matthias Metternich shares how his love for computers at a very young age pivoted into a love for physical goods. Matthias is one of those founders who knows how to identify a market opportunity and build around that, even if it's not his personal passion and has plenty of experience in that arena. But as a lifelong athlete, Matthias does have a passion for sports. And shocker, he isn't alone. Enter Art of Sport. We knew that we wanted to have a number of athletes around us, but we didn't really think of kind of a circle of athletes. Um, And we also weren't necessarily thinking about getting the best we could find across multiple sports. I mean, we were really thinking, okay, we've got Kobe. This is great. Let's go talk to other athletes across all all stages of their careers. Find out how Matias leveraged his tech savviness to build a performance-driven body care line, why the sky's the limit for the future of the brand, and with world-class athletes like Kobe Bryant, MVP James Harden, (laughs) backing him, where Art of Sport is headed next. Unfinished Biz starts now. Matias had an unusual childhood. As you're going to hear, he moved around a lot across the globe. And, you know, he actually had to go and find his own hobbies. That's what led him to actually spending so much time in front of a computer. And he got into hardcore coding. Yeah, I think that was a really interesting segue into his first entrepreneurial venture, which was flipping computers of all things. Mm-hmm. And, and it seemed like each step of the way, it led to the the next part of his journey, which led to Silicon Valley. And in many ways, that journey was so similar to previous unfinished biz guest, John Coogan from Soylent. That's right. And that, that Silicon Valley experience really molded who he is today, which led to the physical goods world. And Matias joined us in our VMG offices in San Francisco to share his truly unique personal story. Well, I remember when I was nine or so, um, my parents gave me a computer. And uh, I moved around a lot as a kid. So every two to three years, I, I moved to a different country. And in some cases... Military family or...? Uh, foreign service. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, foreign service. So the usual two, three-year cycle, my family would sit down and my dad would sort of spin the wheel and be like, it's Somalia, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't quite that extreme, but it was definitely... Um, there were no... Um, there were no regional limits. It was completely international. Yeah. And so every three years, it would be a new country. Oh. And so um, I'd end up, I mean, as a kid, I was in the Soviet Union. I, it was 12, 12 odd countries that I'd moved to growing up. Wow. Um, and then when I was nine, um, I was in Mongolia, of all places. And um, there's a very long winter period in Mongolia. I don't know if you know this, but basically the whole year. Um, and it's <laughs> it is the whole it is year a long period. It's a is minus okay. 30. The 365. Yeah, huh, 365 thing going on. And, uh, and I had a computer, and I remember... Um, figuring out how to log in to the internet at the time. Mm-hmm. And what I spent most of my time doing was developing video games because um, I was a big video game fan. I still am. And I taught myself how to code through that and then realized all my games were terrible because <laughs> the really the means to or the path to creating a, a memorable experience is through design and storytelling. So 
um, I started focusing all of my thoughts on that. And then through various circumstances over the years, ended up building startups from the age of 14 onwards, um, by and large using technology and computers. Yeah. Did you ever launch your own video game? I did. I, I launched a very, um, very romantic story about a knight saving a princess. And uh, it was mostly sort of turn-based. And um, no one played it, obviously, but it was, <laughs> it was, I, I played it, and I thought it was great. And um, yeah, but I moved on to other forms of business. So I remember, I mean, 14 was probably where I peaked in my business career. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, no, I, I basically found that... Um, there wasn't a computer lab at my school. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I I, um, had um, various family friends who had computers. And at that point, the processing power was compounding at at a rate that was very fast. So Mm -hmm. from one year to the next, a computer would become obsolete. So all these people had these computers in their sheds, not knowing what to do with them because they just bought the latest model. So what I would do is I would round them all up uh, I, I started a 501c3, gave them a tax write-off, and then I sold those in bulk to schools. And so I started, that's where my How pocket money came. I was 14, <clears throat> and it was, I, just hap- I was on a basketball team, actually, and we'll get to that later. But I, basically, I love that you started a 501c3. That's very well. Well, I had no money, so giving <laughs> yeah. them a tax write-off for, yeah, no. for this stuff was great. Yeah. Um, and then the schools were over the moon because they would be able to buy you know, 15 reasonably new computers for 150, depending on how, how much I wanted to gouge them, um, <laughs> a pop. And so, you know, I've, that, uh, I was playing basketball in high school and I played against a bunch of different schools. And literally, if you track the calendar year of my games, that's where new computer labs would spring up. Um, cause I'd sell it in when I was there playing basketball and, um, yeah. So after the game, you'd go find like the principal and sell some cute, some, sell some Yeah, computers. most of my, my game was terrible, but I was I was very focused on on do you have a computer lab here? And <laughs> um, and sometimes it would be like we have one computer in the library, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, it was kind of a the fact you know it was a very easy conversation because I was in a position to give them more or less state-of-the-art technology for something that was you know, $200 versus $2,000. So that was a really easy sell. It was the first lesson in, um, in margin, which mm-hmm. was basically the best margin I've ever achieved in my life. <laughs> I was going to say, it's <laughs> yeah. solid. Yeah, good margin. Getting uh, free things and then selling it for more. That's, yeah, that's exactly. Solid. Exactly. And then from there, I moved on to um, uh, building websites for people. So mm-hmm. I was 16, 17, and I went down to my local Staples, and I had printed about 10,000 business cards and you could get cheaper business cards if the card said staples on it too. So all of my business <laughs> oh, cards, it was, said staples. it was co-branded. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So I was, but people thought I worked for staples, which was ber- perfect. So <laughs> there was a, a, a legitimacy factor. And, um, this was before ye- people had websites. This was right. before Squarespace and before, yeah. you know, Tumblr and what yeah. have you. Uh, even Word, um, WordPress. And so this was before people knew you could right-click on a website and view page source and copy-paste out, yeah. into a text editor. And so you could pretty much pull off a new website in 15 minutes. Were you totally self-taught? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I spent, I spent, I mean, I spent an inordinate amount of time behind computers as yeah. a kid. Yeah, for sure. So prior to your latest venture, walk us through kind of, you know, I think you spent some time in the tech community, in the Silicon Valley community. Tell us, give us some highlights of, of some of the ventures you've been a part of, some of the things that went well, and some of the things that you learned from. Yeah. So um, after um, after 
when I was in college, I started a company that was basically an incubator, for, for lack of a better term. I, I appropriated 60% of my time to building stuff that I wanted to build and serviced clients 40% of the time, which paid, paid my way. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that, ended up building a great network into the Valley. And this was at a time when, there, when it wasn't such a hot thing to try and aspire to be a tech guy. Um, and I was the odd man out trying to build stuff. Right. And through that came to build a foundation that I've always gone back to and remember even at the time sneaking into the business school at UCLA and uh, meeting Brett Brewer, who is one of the owners of co-founders of MySpace. Yeah. And uh, he, incidentally, had also snuck into Anderson School of Business as an undergrad. And so there I was looking at, you know, someone who had done the same thing 15 years on and had a great success. And he was, you know, to this day, you know, every now and then we run into each other and I, tr- I never let him forget it. But he was my first kind of access into this community. Yeah. Um, and so from there, I went on to build things for uh, big brands who had budgets, and I got the opportunity to build things like Skype.com when it was, you know, there were a billion concurrent users, and you could do A-B testing with a billion concurrent users, which was unbelievable. But also got to build an F1 team with Richard Branson, um, got to build a help Nike with its fuel band when it launched that with RGA and AKQA, um, and came to learn the tools of building things at scale, which was a lot of fun. And I very quickly, based on my previous experiences, felt, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to be doing this for myself again. I'd love to be not in a position to have to sell ideas into board-level executives, yep. um, but just execute. Um, mm-hmm. And so I started a couple companies uh, early on in the tech space. Um, one was a uh, platform for nonprofits. Basically, I, I was... For some reason, I'm still kind of fascinated by them. What do you mean a platform? It was a tech solution that allowed them to raise funds better online. Okay. And so it was a white label platform that if you were a nonprofit, uh, let's say Salvation Army, and you had you know four offices around the world, I could give you software that would function as your CRM platform, your marketing automation infrastructure, and your payment and donation processing tools. So you could very quickly, in the space of five minutes, have really proficient online fundraising technology. And um, it was an interesting business because um, no one was talking to the long tail of nonprofits because they don't really have budgets for this stuff. So if you introduce a payment processing component and Uh you take a cut from payments they process, then Uh you can have slightly different pricing mechanics based on the size of your customers. And so I was able to give a lot of small nonprofits tools they'd never be able to afford. And then on the larger end, there were enterprise customers that I had to service who had, you know, sort of bespoke requirements. And so that was my first um, foray with venture capital, raised capital from the likes of, you know, Greylock and Index, yep. um, scaled that company into um, servicing five markets, um, but we're, we had a small team of maybe 20, 30 people at the mm-hmm. time. Um, and then from there, continued to build tech companies that I thought were what, exciting. What ended up happening with that business? Well, that business was, um, it was tough because raising capital from venture capitalists was, it was not intuitive for them. They, yeah. they looked at that market and they said, is this a charity that you're running? Mm-hmm. And I would say, no, it's a software company. It's like Salesforce, but it's focused on the $400 billion nonprofit sector. Right. And they would say, well, that's really nice, but 
is this a charity? And I would say, no, I don't understand the <laughs> no, question. Right. Like, I don't get it. Yeah, you were taking a toll from yeah, we were taking this a toll. tremendous flow that goes through. Exactly, and it's a two-way toll where it's the donation goes in, so you take a, a processing fee, but then if you give them the software to go raise the next dollar, right. they'll pay by the seat or by license. Right. So um, it was a fantastic platform that, um, you know, it, it had a ton of functionality that was unique to the industry vertical, but the lack of... Um, experience in the sector or knowledge of the sector basically meant that there weren't investors who thought hmm. that this could be a big opportunity. Um, so did just not getting f- further funding? Is that yeah, what so, I, so we raised a, we put together a Series A. Um, we continue to go really hard at the market. There's a really long sales cycle involved with selling enterprise typically. Yeah. Um, so building out an inside sales team is expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, we were also dealing with nuances in every market we were in. So how, you, how do you um, write off a, or how do you pu- publish a tax receipt, for instance? Yeah. Differs between markets. Um, and every new client had also, in, the larger they were, the more bespoke they required integration mm-hmm. pieces. So we ended up in a world where we were actually spending a lot on continuing to grow and build out this robust solution. And it was contingent on raising onward capital, yeah. which mm-hmm. is not un, un, unsurprising if you're right. building SaaS software. So maybe go go through one more example sure. of, of your ventures prior to Art of Sport. Yeah. So um, and then after that, I thought, screw it, I'm done with software. I'm going to go into physical goods. I'm, I'm, you know, this this ephemeral thing that lives in the cloud that is hard to put a valuation against. I'd rather have a million units in a warehouse that I can sort of approximate the value. And so I decided, how do I use my tech competency or wherewithal and and, and design thinking? And go after a problem um, in a in with a physical with physical products, mm-hmm. right? And so I looked at I scanned the market and I found and it seems bizarre in retrospect, but um, found swimsuits that um, for women was very interesting. So high margin product. Um, what are the things that you consider? I mean, before you got to there's a long list. There's yeah. a very long list of stuff. But basically, I, I'm, I'm completely agnostic as to the opportunity. I right. love every opportunity. Yeah. So if you looked at my phone, it might be um, genomics uh, stuff. It might be uh, debt and how to deal with you know student debt and refinancing. Right. It, it might be, you know, it, it doesn't really matter to me. But what I thought would be fun would be, okay, there's a clear pain point Women hate basically taking off their clothes at department stores uh, to try on swimsuits that they have no idea how many swimsuits have been tried on before them. They can't mix and match the products. There's generally fit issues. Uh, In some cases, um, the experience is horrible and the pricing is out of whack. So a tiny bikini can be $300. Right. So my thinking was, why don't I build a home try-on platform that sends them a bunch of swimsuits to try on at home in the privacy of their home, and mm-hmm. it'll be fantastic fabrics, and, and, and they'll be able to sort of scan the, the sizing and find the right fit and mix and match and return things for free. And so um, I went the route of a tech entrepreneur. I said, how do I scale this thing really hard? And I built an app that got about 50,000 downloads in two hours, and it was sort of an incentive scheme to, to get people to spread the word. Right. And before I launched, I had this long list of customers that I was now beholden to to send stuff out to. Mm-hmm. And you don't know who those people are yet. You mm-hmm. know, you kind of want to go through the process <laughs> right. of right. figuring out who your customer is and what that acquisition funnel looks like and what the repurchase rate looks like and what the cost of acquisition. What you was know, the company called, by the way? It was called Coco Dune. Coco Dune, okay. Yeah. What does that mean? 
Uh, it didn't mean anything. It was sort of, uh, it was <laughs> inspired by Coco Chanel on the one hand and Dune from a sand dune. And I sort of thought, hey, this is kind of catchy. And I, I, I went with it. And did you have partners in any of these? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So I had investors and, and, and it sounds like a harebrained scheme, but they were some of the best uh, retail and fashion investors mm-hmm. out there. Um, and now the problem was I also raised in pounds and midway through the company's life cycle, Why? Brexit hit. Well, I was in England at the time. Okay. So I raised a bunch of cash from English investors. Uh-huh. And overnight, because of Brexit, I lost about a, four, a third or almost a half of my runway when the, when the pound deva- was devalued against the dollar because I was operating out of the United States. Yep. Anyway, we're getting maybe into the technical. No, this That's, is interesting. Yeah. Okay. But, um, but either way, it was, it was a case of scaling very aggressively, being featured in every major publication. I mean, Elle, Vogue, Refinery29, what have you, having these 50,000 customers, having all of this inventory, and then sort of coming to terms with the reality of the business once it was like really live and I had to service people and returns started coming in right. and, and you know, people took advantage of the free try-on. And there were actually a lot of 14-year-olds who had no interest in shopping or had no real disposable yep. income but might have had a prepaid debit card. So you couldn't really screen out for, for that. And, so, uh-huh. yeah, anyway. And then, and then that... How, how, so what was the duration of the business? So I did that for uh, two years um, and basically ended up in a world where I realized that wholesale was much more attractive than the e-commerce game for that yeah. particular product range. And at the time I started, as I was thinking about, okay, this is kind of cruising. I don't know if I want to be building a wholesale business. Um, I sh- probably am not the right guy to do this. I handed the reins off to someone else to take yeah. it forward. And I went back to the drawing board to think about scalable opportunities that I felt I could execute on that had some inherent kind of customer service experience or product proposition differentiator that, that, that I could scale. Um, and, and, you know, I think that based on my previous investors, there was a great network of entrepreneurs in L.A. that I could start to talk to. And there was some fantastic mutual uh, sort of connective tissue with Brian Lee, who's my co-founder in, in, in my current business, Art of Sport. Mm-hmm. So go, before we get deep into Art of Sport, walk through some of the things that you learned from these prior ventures where you go, these are the things that I've learned, and, and, this, is, and this, is why, this is why Art of Sport. Sure. Well, um, yeah, I, f- I think that every, every company deserves its own kind of rationale, and what I'm learning more and more as I build companies is, is you have to kind of retool your expectations and intentions for every new venture. So if it's something that's, let's say, cash generative and, you know, you can run a lean team with and you don't necessarily need to buy a ton of inventory up front, let's say it's a physical goods business, there's no, necessar- there's no real need to start with a ton of venture capital. Like mm-hmm. that's, not, that's not necessary and it puts all sorts of weird risks, uh, stresses on the business early. If it's a software company, then, you know, you don't really roll out of bed to tackle a big enterprise software problem unless you've got real backers who see the big picture and want to go at it. And so you're kind of in the dark for a period of two years building software yep. with developers, maybe 30 developers costing mm-hmm. you, you know, four million a month or five million a month. Yep. So those are completely different approaches. And so I've found that, um, you know, having been through the ringer on a couple of these, but also seen some upside on some of them that that um, using the same playbook doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, with our sport, I think the learning has been, you know, you have to be prepared to evaluate what type of business you're getting into from the outset, what kind of capital requirements you're going to need, what kind of skill sets you're going to need. 
And, you know, being that lean, scrappy operator in a garage by himself might not be the right approach if, you know, you're bringing on partners who can accelerate your company in a way that probably isn't representative of most other companies. So how did you come up with the idea and explain what Art of Sport is? Yeah, so Art of Sport, you know, moving around so much, there were only a couple things I could hang my hat on as a kid. So it was, it was computers on the one hand, but it was also sports. I've, I've played sports my whole life. Um, I've also have the injuries from it. I've played every sport. Um, I ended up landing on rowing in college, um, but I've played basketball and soccer and football and ice hockey and horseback riding and tennis and you name it. But um, so I, I, I've lived that lifestyle um, and I grew up with brands that inspired me like Nike um, and Gatorade and sports brands who were born to serve the athlete. These were people who identified problems on the field and said, hey, there's probably a better way of, of, of tackling this or, or serving that, that, that particular use case. And so um, when Brian and I were sitting down and thinking about our next company, because he was stepping down from Honest Company at the time. How did you meet Brian Lee from Honest Company, who was one of the co-founders of, of that business? Yeah, so Brian and I have, like I said, a couple of mutual connections. Yeah. Um, we've also in the past had some of the same investors mm-hmm. um, with Index, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also reintroduced to Brian once I was in L.A. and, and sort of putting feelers out through Richard Jun, his, 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 one of his business partners, yep. um, and, and Jacob Lazar. Um, and we sat down and, and there was sort of a, a meeting of the minds. You know, you sort of we threw a bunch of stuff up on the wall and we said, you know, this is the here are my war stories. And here's what excites me about the future. And, you know, what are you thinking about? And do you have any interesting ideas? And what, what, what are you passionate about? And. And it was interesting because Brian mentioned, um, you know, he was at the beach with his family and he didn't want to put Honest Company sunscreen on, uh, ironically. But um, <laughs> it, was the, it was the white factor that he wanted to avoid, the zinc, I guess, yeah. from mm-hmm. the sunscreen. The pastiness. The pastiness. Yep. So he went to the CVS across the street and, and, and he was telling me this. And he said, you know, I noticed that there were all these um, sports sunscreens. And I said, that's interesting. I think I know where you're, where you're going with this. He said, you know, when I think of a sports brand, I don't really think of a banana boat. Yeah. You know, I don't think of copper tone. Um, and, and that really struck with me. Uh, and, and we walked the aisles of our, our local Target and saw sport everywhere in the personal care yeah. category. And, and it sort of was like one of those moments where it seemed so obvious and to a point where it was like, is there actually a need for this if everyone is using the word sport? And when we flipped the products over, realized there was no formulation difference between the normal stuff and the stuff that said sport. So mm-hmm. it was really just a marketing device that was being used by everybody. And so with that athlete hat on and having serviced Nike in the yeah. past, I said, this, is, this seems crazy to me. So if you've, if you've got Nike and that's what athletes wear and you've got Gatorade and that's what they drink, what are they applying every day? And having been an athlete when, where I'd be in the sun for hours and get sunburned or, you know, I'd take multiple showers a day because I was working out right. and my skin would dry out as a result. It just seemed like it was actually a very surprising thing that, that no one had sort of addressed application. Yeah. So we set to work on that idea and it was something that we were able to move very quickly on because in part, you know, Brian's playbook is unbelievable with Honest Company and, and, and we had some access to some great scientists, but we also brought in um, one, of, one of the sort of preeminent skincare scientists in the country who happened to be sort of leading innovation at Procter & Gamble. 
And uh, when we mentioned this idea to him, he was just um, sort of a, a, an insatiable kind of waterfall of information and just saying, you're so right there. It is ripe. Um, the stuff that we have been making is kind of for everybody. It's not, it's a catch-all. And, and we're using sport kind of liberally for, you know, the longevity of the product maybe, but not necessarily the efficacy of the, of the formula for athletes. And so, so what, what are the main things to solve for in a sports, in a sports personal care item? Well, there's, there's, there's a bunch. So, um, you know, number one, I think we started with the science behind it and we looked at what exactly is going into the construction of these formulas and so by that, I'm talking about, you know, the, the binding agents and the oils that are used and what happens to the skin when you apply it and is the skin receptive to what's being put on it. And so you're starting with the building blocks. And then from there, it was a question of, well, what's, what's in it outside of that? So you've got that kind of technology, but what are the, what are the ingredients that are being added uh, to it? And we found that very few things were being added. There's stuff in the prestige skincare space that's being added to lotions and things of that yep. sort. But from a daily perspective, you won't find a deodorant necessarily that often includes matcha, which is a sort of a natural energizing ingredient. It's a, a green tea extract or arrowroot, which is increasingly common, I think, yep. in the natural space, but not necessarily in mass market sort of body care, personal care. Um, in the sunscreen or in the pain cream is a good example where, you know, Arnica and eucalyptus are known botanicals to sort of accelerate recovery periods. And, 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 and the list goes on when you look at the variety of products that, that ingredients you can add along the sort of skincare regimen of, of an athlete. Makes sense. Yeah. And as you launched this together with Brian, mm -hmm. what were some of the collective learnings that he brought from Honest Company that he felt went right or not so right that you, that you together wanted to do? They wanted to apply or not apply to art of sport. Completely. Yeah, there were there. I mean, one of the key lessons, I think, for for Brian, and I don't want to speak on his behalf, but but we we've we're both entrepreneurs. We both have a lot of ideas. So so we're always practicing and exercising focus. That's something that I think is key. And I think with Honest Company, there was an opportunity there when they were really first out of the gate as as kind of innovators in, you know, baby care products and speaking to mothers that, that was, there was an opportunity to cast a very wide net and, and look at a number of products very fast. And so with that growth, I think there was also a, a, a confidence that, that came about that informed their product development roadmap. And so um, when they also launched Honest Beauty, you know, the SKU count started to really explode. And yeah. of course, the demands that a, a major retailer places on you in terms of innovation and, and always having new stuff I think exacerbated that. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing that we've been very focused on is a is a is a um, a clear and focused family of products that all make sense together and that we can kind of continue to tackle every day. And they're big enough industry verticals, um, you know, in unto themselves, um, you know, collectively across the products that we have. And it ranges from you know deodorant and body wash through to pain cream and sunscreen. Uh, we're releasing a couple of new products soon, but you know, collectively, we're looking at a thirteen, fourteen billion dollar market, um, and and that's more than enough for us to continue to chip away at and make sure that the products are fantastic and they actually perform. Curious was the, was this the first time that you actually had a co-founder? No, I, I've I've had co-founders in the past, um, and typically the the way it's worked is it's come you know it's 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 an obvious lack of my skill toolbox, and mm -hmm. so. 
let's say with the software company I mentioned, I knew that um, one key differentiator was going to be design and and designing software that was really intuitive for people who are not particularly tech literate. And so the person that I brought on board was a kind of monster designer, an incredible UX thinker. And so that was what complemented our approach to the problem. And in this case, you know, I think they're natural. Comp- we complement each other in many ways because Brian is, you know, he's had some big successes and he's had to scale companies very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And I've been in the trenches for a very long time and I, I love to operate. So I like to execute things end to end. And I also have the technical toolbox in some cases to literally prototype stuff up very fast. Yep. So between us, we're constantly jockeying each other and also checking each other regularly to make sure that we're dreaming big, but we're mm-hmm. always executing small. And, ha- and, and one last question related to Honest as it relates to Art of Sport. Has, has it affected how you thought about how much capital you bring on and when and, and how what pressure that puts on doing unnatural things? Sure. Um, I think I think it's informed it to some extent. I think, um, you know, I think that what we're finding is that there are in the past, I suspect there was I mean, I remember anyway, investors, especially in the tech world, were less prone to um, consider brick and mortar. And so the idea of any products in brick and mortar was only it was a trap. It's right. going to slow you down. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to be dealing in. In bricks, you want to just focus on pixels. And that always felt completely unintuitive to me mm-hmm. and um, short, short-sighted because, of course, your product at retail only serves to accelerate your growth online. And we now know this, and it's more commonplace, and, 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 and that's appreciated. But I think that with this business, it's not so heavily reliant on a one-sided or, or a sort of a, a, a single-dimensional kind of view of how how e-commerce and products live and work in today's reality. So it's, you know, the investors that we have involved in the business understand that nuance. And so it's not a case of rushing to blow a ton of cash on Facebook. It's a case of building a a profitable business Mm -hmm. and one that we feel we can scale rapidly. And if we need to, the unit economics facilitate, you know, great onward financing. Mm Um, so, you know, we have enough capital to, to, to get us to the party to perform and see if we can measure up against the competition. Um, but, you know, it's, it's also a case in this vertical, like I said at the, at the outset, you have to know what kind of business you're getting into. That's right. And so if you're, if you're going to go up against the degrees and the doves and the axes of this world who, you know, frankly are in the business of, of, um, really blocking rather than than innovating mm-hmm. um, you have to have enough cash in your yeah, pocket to go after it to go after it that's right so we knew that from the outset right. so this was never going to be a situation where we slow rolled it yeah. we, we had to we had to come to the party you know but so, speaking of, of it takes more than cash sure so think about what else you come to the party with on partners athletes things of that nature to really go after it sure so um you know, when we were, we started with the science piece and then very quickly from there we felt, you know, hang on, I think we need to really be testing this with the best athletes in the world. And, and that has to be part of the fabric of the company. This is for athletes. And so the by athletes component was, was important to us. So we started at a place with um, sort of scanning the market and looking for someone we felt represented that the sort of unrelenting drive and focus of, of, of you know, someone who'd reached the top and become transcended the sport. 
and Kobe Bryant was, you know, we're based in LA. Kobe Bryant made a lot of sense to us, you yep. know? And I remember telling my, my girlfriend at the time, you know, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to go talk to Kobe about this. And she said, you know, you always have these, these ideas and you need to rein it in. Okay. <laughs> you need to just rein it in. And so I was like, okay, all right, I'm not talking to you about this idea anymore. Um, but we, we, you know, we, we packed our, packed our lunch boxes and we went over to Kobe and we, we showed him what we had and he was in a place in his career where he, you know, and is in a place in his career where, where he wants to be creatively and strategically involved in building companies and his affiliation with and involvement in building body armor was, was, was a great, you know, case study. That's right. And so it was, it, it came together beautifully because we, you know, we're able to demonstrate, we know how to execute stuff really well. Here it all is. We did this in a very short span of time. This is the vision. And, you know, we also have the expertise to pull this off, um, or at least try. And so, um, he was, he, he loved it. He was very specific about certain things. And that was my first, uh, experience, uh, probably dealing with someone who's as obsessive as I am about certain things. Me, obviously less successful in basketball, but, um, (laughs) but, um, what are some examples of that? Were they around, was it around, uh, particular terms of, of his involvement or what the brand stands for? It was, you know, it was not about, we didn't even get into the detail of, of the business relationship. Really. It was a, it was, it was more of a, it was, what does this brand represent in the world? Why does that matter? Why, how are you going to speak to athletes in an authentic way? Like I, you know, I've done that with Nike for 20 odd years. So you're talking to somebody who sat there with Phil Knight trying to rationalize how to roll out Nike globally, you know? So you're, you're, you're one step away from all of the thinking that Nike was doing. Plus, you know, Kobe is extremely creative and, and very deliberate in his, uh, in sort of wording in particular, but also things like fragrances and what fragrances can come to represent. And we're dealing with a product that's a little bit invisible. It's not like a piece of apparel where you're, you're flashing your logo all day. Mm -hmm. But you are dealing with, um, excuse me, multi-sensory, a multi-sensory experience about how you feel um, and the smell that you're giving off and also the performance of that product over the time that you're, that you're wearing it and using it. So he was particular about that. But, but also his, his advice to us was, you know, you, we should really be assembling a roundtable of athletes. And it's, it's my, my, I have one opinion, but I'm sure if we brought other great minds around the table, we'll, we'll have all sorts of great ideas. I'm curious, were you already thinking about doing that? Or was that something that he, an idea that he brought to you guys? We knew that we wanted to have a number of athletes around us, but we didn't really think of kind of a, a, a circle or a founding circle of mm-hmm. athletes. Yep. Um, and we also weren't necessarily thinking about getting the best we could find across multiple sports. I mean, we were really thinking, okay, we've got Kobe. This is great. Let's go talk to other athletes across all, all stages of their careers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that made a lot of sense to us. And we started conversations with a bunch of athletes, including uh, James Harden, who's a partner of ours. MVP. MVP on a streak. Um, and uh, uh, Javier Baez from the Cubs. Um, uh, Ryan Sheckler, skateboarding legend, uh, Juju Smith-Schuster, who's just kind of a phenomenal social media monster, but also <laughs> great talent. Um, you know, uh, Ken Roxon, who's a motocross, supercross world champion. And I've learned a lot about that sport and it's unbelievable. And, um, you know, Sage Erickson, who's also a, a fantastic surfer and brings the female perspective to the party also. 
So you collect. And, and do ahead. athletes do they do they put up cash to invest in the company, or they only receive upside? Like how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, in terms of real skin in the game. We we all we all felt like this is not an endorsement thing, mm-hmm. like, and so as we were thinking about the athletes we wanted to bring on board, we said you know they have to be in a mindset where this isn't just an endorsement deal like all the other stuff they're doing. And you know, credit to people like James and 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 everyone else. Um, they understood very quickly that you know this could be like a body armor. This could be like a a venture that is a startup that I'm involved with and see all the way through. And you know, Ryan Sheckler is a great example of someone who's actually an active investor yep. and was involved with Stance early on. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think his father even works there. So when he commits to something, they go all in. Um, and so we were really scrutinizing it based on that perspective. And, of course, they've got busy schedules. And so part of it was kind of a case of saying, well, what interests you? Like, yeah. what, what, what part of building a business is exciting to you? And <clears throat> what role would you like to play in the business? Because we, we will take all your time if you give it to us. And so that's been the kind of back and forth. Um, and we're, we're, we're getting to learn all these you know, the, the different idiosyncrasies and how best to, to utilize these guys and you know, how much they want to opine on certain things. And... What's also great is their families are very involved in their careers, and so mm-hmm. their families by proxy are partners in the business. <laughs> uh-huh, and so, right. you know, James's mom is a very vocal person about, <laughs> you know, fragrances and whether we put, you know, James's beard on the products or not. Um, but, but, but that's been a fun, fun exercise too. So they're real partners in the business. Um, so most the packaging is going to have a beard on it now, or we're going to string a little beard across the uh, deodorant stick. Nice. No, uh, no, there's no beard. Um, maybe there might be a, be, uh, be a, a beard, beard oil, oil one yeah, day. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if that trend doesn't turn soon. Yeah. Um, but no, real partners in the business, and then outside of that, we also we invested a lot of time um, building out through grassroots a network of about 700 micro influencers of athletes as well. So when we started. You know, my pithy Coco Dune experience that I thought was a monster out of the gate with, you know, 50,000 signups in 20 minutes and what have you was, was nothing compared to having what, what sort of across our athletes and our partners amounts to about 75 million people on their social channels. One thing that stood out when we've chatted in the past, t- tell, tell folks the story about how you got the Times Square billboard. But in, in oh, the, the mainly to take a picture, like my this, secrets. Yeah, this is a, this is a great story this, of your scrappiness. Okay, I, I I didn't plan to tell anyone this, Wayne, but um, <laughs> for you, this is this is one that was cool, and it's actually not that surprising, I think, for for folks who have dealt with out of home media. But um, when we launched, we we you know I I didn't listen to my girlfriend again when I was talking about maybe we should have a billboard in Times Square. <laughs> um, so, so there was no one there saying, you know, rein it in. But, um, you know, I continued to explore that idea. And um, we have a great friend and investor in the business who deals in billboards. Mm-hmm. And so um, I called him up. Um, guys over at Milk Money, a great, great company um, for what it's worth. And basically um, he was like, maybe we can think of something um, and I said, listen, I, am not going to spend a lot of money on this. Like billboards, they sound great, but unless I'm Casper selling mattresses in, right. in the Metro, usually burning money up. Yeah. Just yeah. burning all the money up. This is not what I want to do. And so we found, we started looking at remnant media and remnant media will give you a slot right mm-hmm. in between big billboards. Right. And so, um, sometimes you'll get a week, sometimes you'll get three weeks and I get a call and he says, you know, I got a day. 
and uh, I was like, okay, uh, what is it? Is it a you know is it a poster by a bus? He's like, yeah. no, it's a forty foot you know forty story building. Uh, right in Times Square, and it's a digital billboard, and it's 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 literally. I mean, it's you know, if I look at pictures now, it's like a person standing next to it. You can't even see the person; it's that big. So it's huge, huge, huge thing. And I said, "Great, how much is it?" And he said, "You know, it's it's. Uh, I don't know if you can afford it, but it's about it's about five thousand dollars." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, I think I can stretch to do that mm-hmm. uh, for our launch." And it just actually bizarrely coincided exactly with the day we launched. And and the rationalization for that, and Wayne, Wayne and I talked at length about this as we as we uh, finished off the beers at the party. But basically, um, billboards are for the most part. I mean, they're, they're they're they can be great for stunts. Let's just put it that way. But if you have a um, you know if you have an arbitrage opportunity like having a bunch of influencers and uh, folks with audiences on social, then. The billboard can be up for two seconds for all I care. That's right. I just need a picture of it, and then I'll put it out through social, mm-hmm. right? And so I think part of what was cool about the rationalization of it was Juju's never been in Times Square. You know, Sage has never been in Times Square. I don't know if Ryan has lately, but but frankly, that's it's still a cool thing Absolutely. to be in Times Square. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that when we, when we um, did it and we took photos of it, we sent a photographer down there to, to take the best shots they could, we knew that... Juju would love to post it, and we yeah. knew that that they would. And so, you know, you're you're also exchanging currency further down the trail. It's not like it's a one time thing up front. It's mm-hmm. there's sort of a recurring mechanism increasingly as you as you look to these disparate channels and how to cross leverage them. Yeah. I know. I love that. I love that story of the five thousand dollar you know forty foot billboard. That, yeah, that, and it was that, great. That, that pushed out. You should have been, or, or it took over people's social. Feed. And, and no one, so. no one until today knew that it was up for like two two days. Well, you now should, now you, you, like, you heard uh, it here first. You should have said, "I only need five minutes." So prorate this for me. Yeah, I literally need five minutes. Well, and I'm good. I'll well, need the whole day. The other yeah. cool piece about it too was that there was it was. As he was telling me about it, it sounded amazing initially, and then and then it sort of got less and less exciting because he was like, you know, it's it's on a carousel. I was like, yeah, that's cool. We'll have we'll have different pictures of different athletes. Right. Awesome. Yeah. We'll get them all in there. He was like, no, no, no. You'll also be up there with a bunch of other clients. And I was sort of like, well, so how often does our yeah, sport so- come around <laughs> on the carousel? Good question. So, all you need is once. Yeah, it came up once. No, yeah. it came up more than that. Yeah. But, yeah. but I'm just saying it was a. You know, I think you have to sort of know when to take advantage of certain yeah. things like that, and that was a no-brainer. And know when to take the picture. That's right. Yeah, that was that. And I was. I had. I think. I, I think we hired three photographers just oh, sure. in case one and of them drone. got stuck. Yeah, yeah, and a drone. Yeah. yeah. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, Matthias Metternich. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can find us at unfinishedbiz.com and on our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page. I love LinkedIn. (laughs) Subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. If you love the show, we'd love an iTunes review. And now let's get back to our episode with Art of Sport co-founder and CEO, Matthias Metternich. One question we like to ask is, has there been a bet the company moment in Art of Sport yet? Um, no, because we've, we launched in October. So, mm-hmm. um, so far it's, it's the rocket ships taking off and it's super exciting for us and, and there's a lot to learn and mm-hmm. there's a lot to get right. So we're not in a place where we're like, this is our last dollar. What do we do right. with it? Right. Um, so, so it's, it's a, it's, it's kind of the honeymoon period, but we're fast learners. And so we know what we need to look out for. I've had lots of bet the company moments in the past that are, that are um, very unglamorous and unexciting and that I would say amounts for most of my entrepreneurial career. And I'm sure most entrepreneurs would, you know, after a few beers admit to that also. But 
Um, not yet. Mm-hmm. We've bet the company in the sense that we believe that the mission and the product range is needed. Mm-hmm. And so we've gone all in on this premise with our partners who are some of the most famous athletes in the world. So there isn't, there isn't really a, a way to disappear quietly. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But to, and to date, is there a particular high point that really stands out? Well, I remember, I mean, there were a lot of high points because, you know, when, when Kobe signs on to something, that's huge. You know, it's just like, my God, I, I remember sitting in an arena watching you and now, you know, you're, you're our business partner. You're our founding partner in this business. And I, I, I get to present to you and I get to feed off of your, your ideas. And this is awesome. So that was, that was a huge one for us. And then just getting any idea to the starting line. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's always a big moment. Um, Speaking of Kobe, you, you want to share his uh, phone number with everybody in the audience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 1-800-Kobe, right. uh, Art of Sport. Um, no, but basically, he, you know, that was a big one. I remember meeting James for the first time, and he went in for a monster bear hug, which I thought was really cool. I didn't expect that. Um, so we hugged. Let me know when you want to hook a brother up. I mean, I'm a huge Rockets fan. You want to fan. hug when I can give you yeah, a hug. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hug from you. But it'd be nice to have James come over too. Yeah. Put on a beard, the right. whole thing. It's fine. Yeah, I got That's some right. of the beard in my yeah. face as he went in. Nice. It was very comfortable. <laughs> nice. It was very nice. Um, and then the other high points were seeing the athletes get behind it in yeah. a way that you know you you don't know who your partners are until you're in the ringer together mm-hmm. and so that's been that's been great because it's been i would say you hear these things about celebrities being really tough to deal with maybe we got lucky but everyone has just been so collaborative and so constructive so that's been brilliant yeah and on the flip side any any low points yet in art of sport Sure. I mean, low points all the time. Yeah. Right? I mean, you, you're dealing with physical goods. You have to make them. You've got partners and suppliers. And you. I'm so used to designing things and putting them, you know, save to web. You right. know, that's what I say. It's yeah. like, okay, ship it. Done. We're ready. Yep. It's live. And here it's a case of, you know, it's just anything that can go wrong in the supply chain <laughs> will go wrong. It's just, it's, a, it's, it's right. the law. Yeah. And so we've had moments where, you know, we're, we're making a bunch of stuff and we get a call in the middle of the night and somebody's like, the guy who's supposed to push the button didn't turn up or <laughs> so we'll do it next month, you know? And yeah. you're sort of like, but no, we need, you know, hundreds of thousands of units right now. We're, we're going to run out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one thing that's been learning for me is I hadn't played with Amazon before, yeah. you know? And so we, we, we decided early on, we're going to, we're going to play the game of Amazon and we're going to learn how to do it. And, that's been a monster for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very tough to predict, of course. The ordering pattern, right? The ordering mm-hmm. pattern. And also when you add you know, that, that, that audience to the, to, the, to, the, to the flame, you have no idea what your volumes are going to be. Right. It's totally unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And a PR story involving Kobe that we might not even have planned can send the whole company in a, whole, in a, in a direction. So um, that's been very interesting and, and a lot of risks associated with playing with fire like that. Yeah. And what's keeping you up at night these days? Uh, scaling. Yeah. Yeah. Scaling because, um, you know, I think the supply chain in this business vertical is an expression of the players in it. So um, it's not like we're playing in the natural uh, topicals game where we're charging $45 for a a cream that has great ingredients. Like you can find, you could throw a dart into a dark room right. and hit a thousand vendors who do mm-hmm. that for you. Um, we're dealing in a cat. We're, you know, we're in a category where we knew out of the gate, we want to be priced uh, affordably. 
we want to bring that price down over time probably, um, and we want to make sure that we're competitive with the likes of Axe and Tegree and Old Spice. So there isn't really a... Um, there aren't a bunch of factories that are putting out that kind of volume. Yeah. And so um, one thing that, that is, is, is challenging is that you know, a lot of these big players have consolidated the market or they've vertically integrated. Um, and that's another moat that they've put in place. Right. Um, so, so we're always building that proficiency out. And the more I, I, I'm thinking about it, and Brian, we, we think about it and, and try to safeguard our path to scale is the more we think about our own factories and our own, you know, our own teams making things day and night to to keep up with the demand. Um, that's Which is another bear. Yeah, yeah, itself. definitely. Kobe Harden, that's quite the All Star list. Well, the real All Star is just Harden. He means the MVP, the best player in the league. Great, the, great beard. The MVP of flopping. The the All Star. We like, can agree or disagree on nah, that. You I mean, come on, it's ridiculous. Anyways, Axe, Degree, Old Spice. I mean, those are all incumbents in the space, but I think these guys are just doing it a slightly different way. I think it's no different than what Body Armor looked at uh, in comparison to Gatorade. That's right. Really, really looking about building a tribe of of literally all star athletes mm-hmm. that influence and give a phenomenal halo effect to the brand. Right. But he's just doing it in a different category. Yeah, it's been done in beverage before very successfully. And I do think that, you know, that playbook just hasn't been run. So, But I think the launch plan's a little unique in that it's different than, than beverage. You, you're, he's focusing on direct-to-consumer online e-com. Yep. And I think it's not surprising because Matias is really still a coder at heart. So when you're not, when you're not building art of sport, what do you like to do? I'm super boring. I uh, <laughs> I'm not interesting. Um, you still code code for yeah. Fun? I do a little bit. It's very shitty code. Um, yeah, <laughs> and it's uh, but I design a lot. I do a lot of uh, so increasingly more industrial design stuff. But um, you know, it's it's kind of a curse. I remember um, since I could walk, I've been the kind of kid who'd walk into a sandwich shop and be like, you know, that, that logo is just kind of bothering me, and I don't know about this color scheme in right. here and. The furniture, who thought of that? That's just disgusting, you know. And uh, there's so much stuff on the menu, you know. So I, I in, my passion is to is to is to think about things and, and think about making things and making things better. And usually for the purposes of nothing else than than sort of proving to myself that I could maybe do a better job than the last guy, you know. And I think that's when I look around the world and I see things. I think it's really just an expression of what the last guy thought up. I mean, I mean that's what it is. You know, we look at things and we say yep. everything is pre baked, but that's just one version of reality. Still hoop at all? Uh, yes, a little bit. You play with uh, Kobe or James? <laughs> uh, they would not dare. They would not dare. <laughs> exactly. uh, they don't want to get dunked on? They do not. Yeah. That's, that's a hot take right here. Matias uh, says he's going to dunk on you. My streak, my one-point streak. <laughs> that's nice. uh, Zero-point streak. No, um, no, and my, I have, my girlfriend is, a, is also an entrepreneur, and she's actually squarely in the food space, mm-hmm. so she owns grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, so what's challenging there is uh, because I can prototype stuff, I can kind of put something on the store shelf and see if it sticks yeah. using her sell-through data. 
And I've had to stop doing that because it's it's a lot of fun to say like, what if we did a high end jerky that was a Maui flavor yeah. and we put it here and see if that sells? Right. And so yeah, yeah, one you you already have a company over here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so 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 yeah. Anyway, that's uh, but I I, I am inc- I'm visiting her more often because I'm forcing my my artist sport product on her and her <laughs> shelves so that that keeps they're gonna us. Turn, connected. They're going to turn into artist sport stores. Yes, exactly. So. Yeah. All right, Matias, you ready for our signature game? Rapid fire, 60 seconds. Lots of pressure. So ready. All right. Instagram story or Snapchat story? Neither. Neither. Spotify or Pandora? Um, Groove Shark. Lefty or righty? Righty. Wine or beer? Wine. Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts? Neither. Patriots or literally any other team? Uh, Literally any other team. (laughs) Coffee or tea? Coffee. Uber or Lyft? Uber. East Coast or West Coast? West Coast. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Nike or Adidas? Oh, Nike. Hit snooze or wake up right away? Wake up right away. Hummus or guacamole? Guacamole. Check your bag or carry on? Carry on. Chocolate, vanilla. Chocolate. Watching Friends or The Office? Uh, but yeah, The Office. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Pen or pencil? Pen. Treadmill, run outside. How is this useful for entrepreneurs? It's super useful. Okay, uh, pen in that case. <laughs> Book, Kindle, or iPad? Book. Going out or staying in on a Saturday night? Always staying in. Winter or summer? Winters. Sweet or savory? Savory. Truth or dare? Dare. Facebook, Twitter? Facebook. Museum or the park? Museum. Burger King, McDonald's? Burger King. Gum or mints? Gum. Sunday milkshake? Is that one thing? That's two things. Two different Sunday. things. Okay. Mashed potatoes or baked potatoes? Baked potatoes. Red eye or a full day flight? Uh, a full day flight. Oh. <laughs> Electric guitar or acoustic guitar? Acoustic guitar. Home cooked or takeout? Home cooked. Marvel or DC Comics? Marvel. Wow. Last question. Okay. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. There's a lot of advice out there. I think the the first piece of advice would be um, build out your toolkit. So um, become proficient in certain things. The toolkit that I started out with was coding and then design. And then to make a couple of extra bucks here and there, I remember cold calling for a company when I was younger. So that was useful. And then Excel to do financial modeling. And the combination of those three means you can spin up anything you want to spin up because you can build out a business plan, you can design the prototype, and you can push it live to the web and see if it sticks. So that, that, that's where I would start. And then the other piece that I would also advise is um, maybe this is just my own personal take on it, but I feel like the clock is ticking down. So there's not a lot of time. Um, and, and if you're going to execute ideas, you're going to have to prepare to walk up to plate for maybe 10 years at a time so choose very wisely, think it through, and be very passionate about the concept you want to launch, not just start because you want to be an entrepreneur. That's, that's what I feel like I'm seeing more and more of, is, is folks who feel they have to be an entrepreneur because they're seeing people holding $100 bills on Instagram, right. and they will themselves into starting something, and the idea sucks, and they have no skills to do it. And it sounds brutal, but but I, the reality is, is I, I remember I studied music way in the past, and there were a bunch of hopeful, aspiring singers in the hallway, and nine-tenths of them are not singing anymore. And and part of it is because they completely underestimated what it takes to, to go after it. So I would advise young entrepreneurs, do it. It's an exciting career path, but be very um, deliberate in your choices, and money is probably the last thing to think about as part of that equation. That's great advice. 
Well, Matthias, thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Thanks for having me. It's great. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back in our next episode with a mystery guest. Stay tuned. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com. These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG Partners. And now a word from our lawyers. This is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.